0: And now I use those okay. experiences uh, Car- to our Scary Lake got
1: kicked off So, Fox folks, names.
0: I think it's pretty safe to say at this point that myself and ninety-nine point nine percent of all of you watching aren't the biggest fans of Carrie Lake, her Scary ideas, Lake. and what she stands for, what she says, all yeah, of that. But actually... what's really interesting is that tonight, and really over this weekend, she has created a rare moment of unity between rival news sources, that this person, because she's so despicable and she has this unique ability to anger people all over the political spectrum through her awful, you know, scumbaggery, has united Fox and MSNBC in criticizing her at this really interesting moment. And it's because, you know, her her ridiculousness around the big lie in some ways makes Trump look at least borderline more reasonable than her. And she's even more insane than most of the MAGAs. And let's also be clear, it got so bad that she's now attacking everyone in the Republican Party that isn't Trump, that everyone in the party is sort of coming against her. And so we're at this interesting moment where she gets trashed as expected on MSNBC. She gets attacked during a really, really incisive Fox segment And also, as part of this, she's been kicked off Fox News during a live interview, during this broad, long descent into insanity that typifies Carrie Lake.
2: Let's start with this breakdown from MSNBC. Uh, An appeals court yesterday rejected failed Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake's lawsuit challenging... Her election loss. A three judge panel upheld a lower court's ruling that said Lake did not provide enough evidence to support her claims that the election results were tainted by illegal votes. And misconduct by election officials. The chief judge wrote in part that the evidence ultimately supports the court's conclusion that voters were able to cast their ballots, that votes were counted correctly, and that no other basis justifies setting aside the election results. This Ruling comes as Lake's lawyers are facing bar complaints over their work with the former candidate. Yeah, lawyers no. have already been sanctioned by a federal Fuck. judge over an election-related lawsuit. Where are these lawyers coming from, Joe, that that Trump is getting and Kerry Lake? Yes, who are these Trump people? Who, who are these people? Know, Where they, they get them, like, the off the side of the road?
3: Who are these men? Who are these men, she asked from the witness stand and the verdict. And women. And women. Um, But you know, Elise, um, we can actually just step back for a second here and, 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 and look at all the times we asked. Are some people just above the law? Can lawyers just go in front of courts and lie? Is there is there no recourse? Is there no justice? We are finding now, time and time again, I mean, let's just look at the top two stories this morning. A grand jury found what was found time and time again by Republican-appointed judges in Georgia, by a Republican governor in Georgia, by a Republican secretary of state in Georgia, by Republican elected officials in Georgia, and just we just had a judge... Panel, a three-judge panel in Arizona, find what Republicans in Maricopa County have founded, Republican-appointed judges have founded, Republican uh, officials founded, time and time again, that there was no election fraud. And not only are these people facing uh, justice in court, and Donald Trump may face the ultimate justice in uh, in, in court with the coming indictment right. in Georgia, but even their lawyers uh, are are being held accountable for going in front of judges and, and just lying. It just, just I, and again, I, this is something, I guess as a lawyer, it's kind of strange. As a politician, I understand everything's on the table. You've just, you've got to swat everything away. But the lawyer in me has always been deeply offended by the arguments that these people have made in front of judges. And I asked myself from the very beginning, how can Rudy Giuliani get away with that? How can He's these really other lawyers get away with I would have been disbarred the first day. You know,
0: that's just kind of recapping the news from the last few days that we covered. Her legal defeat, how crazy it is. We've seen from some other sources as well. We talked about it earlier today, I believe, when we were discussing Mary Trump, how Carrie Lake is, is more insane than the average MAGA. And I know that's, that sounds hard to believe, but she was the only major candidate sticking to the big lie after the election. She's the only one. There was, there was you know, a lot of people in Trump's election right? Trump still does it, but a lot of people in 2020, Republicans that lost even races like 30, 40 points, they were pushing the lie. This time, though, everyone conceded, seemingly, there there must be some examples that I'm missing. Everyone conceded or went away, uh, including people like Blake Masters, including people like Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker and all these high-profile Trump-endorsed candidates, and she didn't. And I know her race was closer than some of those ones, but she still... Continues to push the big lie. And it's gotten on Fox's nerves, especially because she's attacking the potential golden boy at Fox, Ron DeSantis. But also listen to this, because there's another really fascinating tidbit. And then we're going to get to the interview where she gets booted. But listen to if you can see another attack on a high profile MAGA.
4: Liners and nicknames and tweets and not very subtle innuendo. Governor Ron DeSantis hasn't even announced his plans for 2024, but that has not stopped the attacks from coming. Not the normal attacks from the New York times or the Washington post. No, this attack was from a failed Republican gubernatorial candidate in Arizona. Three months ago, she thought Ron DeSantis was the best thing since sliced bread. Now she wants you to think governor DeSantis was endorsed by George Soros. Of course, it's not true, but why let the truth get in the way? A Republican member of Congress referred to Nikki Haley this week as, quote, a Bush in heels. It was intended as an insult, which sent me scurrying to the history books. Can you guess the last Republican president to win both the popular vote and the Electoral College? If you guess Bush and Bush... You're right. Monday is President's Day, the perfect time to reflect on not only the presidents of yesteryear, but also on what we want in a president and why we so infrequently get what we want. Great nations, great people should have great leaders. We should demand them. But who wants to run in this environment? Nikki Haley was considered a good governor but her service is dismissed with a quip about women's shoes from another Republican woman. Don Lemon insulted her, which is not a surprise. It's the attacks from other GOP women that had me scratching my head. Ron DeSantis may have been the biggest winner of all last November. He was reelected in overwhelming fashion and without even announcing a bid for president, he's attacked.
0: I think that's really fascinating. You can see that, you know, she's trying to push this narrative might, that, that Soros, you know, who's the, the right-wing boogeyman, uh, the persistent boogeyman of the, of, the, of, the, of the far right in the United States, which is undeniably connected to anti-Semitism and, and, and conspiracy theories and things like that, endorsed Ron DeSantis, when in actuality, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. He in no way did. He did predict that Ron DeSantis may well defeat Donald Trump in the Republican primary if he ends up running, and it's like a hypothetical matchup. He could beat Trump, which I think we agree is is possible. But that's not an endorsement. Uh, you can make an you know a, a a educated political prediction without wanting that outcome to happen. I can say to people that hey man, like Ron DeSantis was going to win that Florida governor's election. I didn't want it to happen, but.
2: I remember
5: you saying I won't forget the life check. Who talks like that? You apparently can we just can we watch the replay? I would
6: love it. This what really
0: happened, but all of the data showed he was gonna win. But like, you know, this is interesting here that they're 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 tearing into Carrie Lake, one of the rising stars on the far right. And there also was a shot there at Marjorie a little bit too right? For the same thing, for attacking Nikki Haley, for for calling her a Bush in heels and saying, hey man, like, if you want Republicans that can actually win, the last two to do it were both Bushes. And of course, I'm not going to defend Bush Jr. or Bush Sr. in any way at all. But it is is true to say that they actually know how to win elections in both the popular vote and uh, Electoral College. Although, of course, we know that uh, Bush Jr. didn't win the popular vote and probably shouldn't have been president uh, in, in my view. But the point is, This is really ugly. Carrie's united MSNBC and Fox in trashing her down. And remember this, guys, that Carrie Lake doesn't just get trashed on Fox News. She gets booted from Fox News for
7: acting like a moron. We can't keep having elections that nobody can live with, and we can't have this level of fraud anymore.
5: Understanding that every Republican leader in Washington says that Joe Biden is the legitimate president, everyone. but I understand what you're running well, on. But let me They're let sitting me,
7: there in Washington. They're sitting right. there in Washington. Understood. They're not here in Arizona. This is what we you're running on. Some decent- I get it. Let Journalists me just, to come out here and dig through this. Let me just
5: ask you one thing. Uh, obviously, as a candidate, you come under scrutiny. The Washington Post has a story today. It says Arizona GOP candidate who criticized drag queens was once a fan, according to a drag queen. This is the quote, Arizona GOP gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, who has attacked drag queens as dangerous to children, attended the shows of drag queen Richard Stevens for more than 20 years and once hired him to perform at her home. Do you care to
7: address that? I do care. I actually- I actually do care to address that. And I'm really shocked. I'm actually appalled that Fox News would take defamatory story like that. And we are pursuing legal action against this drag queen. I'm appalled that you would bring that up when you have not talked about our stolen election. You failed We just to talk spent about three that.
5: questions, Ms. Lake, talking about this. I you just asked it. you a number of questions about it. I played the Arizona this House is speaker. The first let's address, this, is let's the first address this story that's in the Washington Post. Every candidate takes wow. tough stories. I'm asking you to I'm respond to it to if you'd it. like to.
7: I'm happy to address it, but I, I'm really disappointed in Fox. I thought you were a little better than CNN. <laughs> this is a person who I covered for... Decades for decades, 20 years, and he's never been in my home. He says he's been in my home for a drag show. That's ludicrous. He's never been in my home.
3: He's lied. We tried to serve him
7: defamation papers. Okay. And he's so shady that we can't even track him down because he's not even welcome at the places that he
5: works. I'm sorry, but this is the last question I'm going to ask. What about these pictures of you with him? Richard Stevens. Brent, and the what about the, is, the post? I've performed for Carrie's birthday. I've performed in her home. That's not I've true. I've performed for her at that's some of the seediest bars in Phoenix. I don't want to ask these questions. I ask you to address them.
7: I, that's actually, it. I, think you, I think you do want to ask them, but you don't want to ask about 2,000 Mules. I think you do want to ask about this. This is absolutely ludicrous. I'm, I'm talking about drag shows in schools. This is what triggered this man. Somebody who goes to a drag show with female impersonators is one thing. We don't want our tax money going into drag shows at school. Okay, I understand and what you're making a difference the there. But you're I'm saying his allegations them. are wrong, is They're what false. you're saying. Yes, okay. I am. Right. And I'm really, I'm really appalled that you would spend time on a false story like that. It's shocking. Well, I think so you it's, didn't ask, it's important you didn't ask to have opponent. candidates address things that are coming up that might affect uh, a race. Truly. And I thought you would appreciate that. you didn't that. ask my opponent, the establishment opponent who was here last week, you didn't ask her about her votes to allow illegal alien students to get a lower tuition than American students. You didn't ask her about okay. the 70 plus times that she raised tuition on American students. You didn't ask her any tough questions. That's and not here true. you have me on and you try to bring a defamatory story out. It's really sad. I Ms. thought Lick, there was hope. I really appreciate
5: your time. Uh, we thought we'd address all issues that are on the table. That is one of them being covered today. Uh, we thank you and we'll cover the primary on this you.
7: Please send reporters out to cover this corrupt election. We would appreciate it. Thank you. Uh- <laughs> what a
1: cut. It's true, too. She's a fucking liar. It was, um, uh, what's the name of that drag queen? Mm, Seville? Barbara. Barbara Seville. (coughs) (coughs) There's a picture of her, um, hanging out with this drag queen. They were friends. And yeah, it was a birthday party at her, at her house. Fuck hers. Fucking lying cunt. Thank God we didn't stupidly elect that st- cunt. did go... What a horrible woman. She should really be disqualified. Exclamation point. She should be disqualified. scary lakes house scary yeah Go. GOP operative sentenced to 18 months for funneling Russian money to Trump campaign. Yeah. Sounds about right. Uh You weren't able to add your post. Why not? It's not letting me post. What, they're not letting me, oh. Um, uh, Nightmare Week, already covered that. Women and Changed History, that sounds pretty cool. Since
6: 1939, America First has been helping people pursue their financial goals, and as we have...
1: This is on the peoples, the peoples... The woman known to
6: history as Hatshepsut was born in ancient Egypt in approximately 1507 B.C. Her father was Thutmose I, a pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, who ruled mainly from the city of Thebes, which is now in the modern city of Luxor on the river Nile, 500 miles south of the Mediterranean Sea. Thutmose I was a renowned military leader, and oversaw the vast expansion of the ancient Egyptian empire eastwards into the Levant, and southwards into Nubia, now northern Sudan and southern Egypt. He was likely the son of the previous pharaoh, Amenhotep I, and a secondary wife, but the Egyptians did not create family trees, so identifying blood relations can be difficult. Her mother was Ahmose, the principal wife of Thutmose I, but it is not known who Ahmose's parents were, although it is highly likely that she was born into the royal family. Egyptologists have argued that she was the daughter of pharaoh Amenhotep I, making her the sister and wife of Thutmose, something that was common within the royal family. However, she was never given the title of king's daughter. Instead, she was referred to as the king's sister, suggesting she was the sister of either Amenhotep or Thutmose. Ahmose and her husband Thutmose I had two daughters, the eldest of whom was Hatshepsut, and no surviving sons, which would become a problem for the dynasty. Hatshepsut was only the second historically confirmed woman to rule Egypt with the full titles and power of a pharaoh. She belonged to the 18th dynasty, which ran from 1507 BC to 1458 BC, and she ruled for over two decades, from 1478 BC to 1458 BC. Hatshepsut lived over 3,500 years ago, and to put into perspective how long the period of ancient Egyptian history is, Hatshepsut lived over one thousand years after the building of the pyramids of Giza, and one hundred years before Tutankhamun, two hundred years before Ramesses, and one thousand four hundred years before the most famous female pharaoh, Cleopatra. Little is known about Hatshepsut's childhood, but her name, which means foremost of noble ladies, highlighted her prominent position within the royal family. She certainly would have had important royal duties to fulfill, including being involved in religious rituals. She is known to worship the cow goddess Hathor, in particular, who was the goddess of love, beauty, music, dancing, fertility and pleasure, and was also the protector of women. There were forty-two state gods and goddesses in total in the ancient Egyptian religion, the most important of which was Amun-Ra, the sun god creator, who was later seen as king of the gods. As the eldest daughter of the pharaoh, Hatshepsut would have been expected to marry the next pharaoh, a tradition which aimed to keep the royal bloodline pure, and so, at around the age of twelve, she married her half-brother Thutmose II, becoming his principal wife. As Thutmose II was younger than Hatshepsut, she perhaps took over the reins of power in her husband's name when their father, that the I died in 1493 BC. By the time Hatshepsut came to full power in around 1478 BC, Egypt, as a unified country, was already seventeen centuries old, as legendary king Menes had first ruled a unified Egypt in around 3100 BC. As it is today, The land of ancient Egypt was made habitable by the river Nile, which cut through the desert and gave the names to the two regions of Egypt, Upper Egypt, which was upriver in the south, and Lower Egypt, downriver in the north, around the Nile-Delta region. The king or pharaoh ruled both regions with the title of King of Upper and Lower Egypt, Lord of the two lands, but there were distinct differences between the two areas. They had different protector goddesses, Nechbet, the vulture goddess in Upper Egypt, and Wadjet, the cobra goddess in Lower Egypt. The regions were also represented by different symbols, the lotus for the upper and the papyrus for the lower, which were often tied together to symbolize unity. In those periods when Upper and Lower Egypt were united, there was huge prosperity and astonishing cultural achievement. They were true golden ages. The first Golden Age occurred during the period of the Old Kingdom, 2649 BC to 2100 BC. This was the Age of the Pyramids. Disintegration and competing dynastic families brought this Golden Age to a temporary end, a period called the First Intermediate Period, from 2181 BC to 2055 BC. The Middle Kingdom, from 2030 BC to 1650 BC was the Second Golden Age, a time when Egyptian culture and literature flourished. This period of growth had begun with the reunification of Upper and Lower Egypt by Mentuhotep II. However, the beginning of the end of the Middle Kingdom was caused by a break in the royal line. Female pharaoh Sobek Neferu died in 1802 BC without any heirs, resulting in the collapse of the successful 12th dynasty. The next two dynasties, which overlapped, proved weak. The 13th dynasty was forced to retreat southwards towards Memphis and failed to prevent a breakaway dynasty forming. The breakaway 14th dynasty reigned separately over the Nile Delta region simultaneously. The second intermediate period from 1650 BC to 1550 BC, which followed, saw Egypt once again divided. In the north, the Hyksos dynasty arrived from Western Asia, and its six kings ruled as the 15th dynasty. In the south, the kingdom of Kush, an early civilization in the region of Nubia, northern Sudan, expanded its reach. In the middle sat the Egyptian kingdom of Thebes, or the 16th dynasty and the 17th dynasty. It was during the 17th dynasty that war was launched against Hyksos rule, who were eventually pushed out of Egypt by the Thebans of the 17th dynasty. It was at this time that Upper and Lower Egypt were reunited by Ahmose I of Thebes in 1550 BC, and the Third Golden Age began. This brought ancient Egypt full circle, as another Theban, Mentuhotep II, had united Upper and Lower Egypt at the start of the Middle Kingdom too, also triggering a golden age. In reunifying the country, Ahmose became the founder of the New Kingdom and the first king of the Eighteenth Dynasty, to which Hatshepsut also belonged. As the period of foreign rule in Egypt came to an end, Egypt began to build up its own empire. During the Second Intermediate Period, the Kushites had raided the south, prompting the Egyptians to expand further south into Nubia. The kingdom of Kush was firmly pushed back under Hatshepsut's father Thutmose I around 1500 BC, and the earlier defeat of the Hyksos during the Second Intermediate Period saw the new kingdom of Egypt expand into the Levant. It was during this time, just before Hatshepsut's reign, that the Egyptian empire attained its greatest territorial extent. Hatshepsut was directly related to these empire-expanding pharaohs. As well as her father Thutmose I, Hatshepsut was a blood relation of Ahmose I, the unifier of upper and lower Egypt, and the first ruler of the new kingdom. But although they came from the same dynasty, tracing their family connections is difficult. Ahmose I's son, Amenhotep I, was his successor. But after that, the historical record becomes unclear. Amenhotep I was succeeded by Thutmose I, but Thutmose never used the title King's Son, which puts a question mark over his connection to Amenhotep. Some Egyptologists have argued that Thutmose's wife Ahmose was Amenhotep's sister, making Thutmose his son-in-law rather than biological son. Or he might have been Amenhotep's son, born of a lesser wife, which would have restricted his use of the title King's Son. It is also possible that Thutmose was a general chosen by the heirless Amenhotep to rule. However, a violent coup can be ruled out as an explanation. As the records suggest, a peaceful transition of power occurred. Dynastic problems did not come to an end after the accession of Thutmose I. A recurring issue was that sons born to secondary wives and any female children were not considered ideal heirs. Thutmose I and his principal wife, Ahmose, had no surviving son, only two daughters, of whom Hatshepsut was the oldest. Thutmose I did have a son, Thutmose II with a secondary wife, Mutnofret, and it was thought best, according to tradition, that Thutmose II be quickly married to his half-sister Hatshepsut. This would bolster the credentials of Thutmose II and preserve the direct royal line. Egyptologists of the past have presented Thutmose II as weak and frail. This presentation was not necessarily rooted in fact. It was fueled by a determination to present Hatshepsut as domineering. A shrewd Hatshepsut was supposed to have manipulated her ineffective husband and essentially ruled in his name. However, public monuments paint a different picture. A dutiful Hatshepsut is shown standing behind her husband, showing appropriate fealty to him, as the pharaoh. But the limited scale of Thutmose II's building program hinders a deeper understanding of his reign, and the power his wife held. Thutmose II ruled only for a short time after his father's death. He was succeeded by his wife and half-sister, Hatshepsut, for the same reason he himself had almost been passed over, the lack of a son born of the principal wife. Just like his father, Thutmose II did have a son with a secondary wife, Isis. This child, Thutmose III, could not immediately take the throne because he was very young, and like with the accession of Thutmose II, there was some concern over the child's status as the son of a secondary wife. The weakening of the direct royal line was a concern that could not be easily overlooked. Instead, As tradition indicated, Hatshepsut was to rule as co-regent for the young boy, a role which soon grew to that of a co-ruler. There had been precedents of widowed principal wives ruling as regents and dutifully handling the affairs of the government for their young sons, but the short lifespan of ancient Egyptians meant that young rulers and the requirement for regents was not unusual. And Hatshepsut's royal credentials as both daughter and wife of past pharaohs were unimpeachable. Thutmose Third was recognized as king from the beginning of his co-regent period, which ran from 1478 BC to 1473 BC. Monuments from the time show the child king in the form of an adult, as was traditional, performing royal duties and rituals. Hatshepsut, dressed in royal female garb, is depicted off to one side, demurely watching over her stepson, but Hatshepsut's rise to full power was not inevitable at the start of their joint reign. It was only several years later that Hatshepsut began appearing on monuments in the costume of the male pharaoh, indicating a change in status. The first example we have of this gender-swapping power-dressing comes from the second year of the co-regent period, with Hatshepsut depicted in the Karnak temple complex in Thebes, wearing the robes of a female ruler, but the crown of a male king. This slow adoption of the symbols of the pharaoh suggests that her rise to power was gradual, rather than an abrupt coup. But, in around 1473 BC, Hatshepsut took on the title of King of Upper and Lower Egypt, and the regalia and other formal titles of the pharaoh of Egypt. This was a permanent promotion. Hatshepsut could not step down when Thutmose came of age, as the role of pharaoh was a lifelong responsibility. Pharaohs could not abdicate or rule temporarily. But even at this time, when her power was at its height, she ruled as a co-ruler with Thutmose III. The reasons behind Hatshepsut's decision to take on the full titles of kingship are lost to history. She may have been acting to safeguard the throne for Thutmose III, as the deaths of Thutmose's mother, Isis, and Hatshepsut's mother, Ahmose, removed the remaining links to the previous royal generation, and perhaps left Hatshepsut feeling exposed. Although 19th and 20th century Egyptologists were keen to present Hatshepsut as an ambitious, cunning woman with an unnatural hunger for power, there is little evidence to support this view. It was more likely that Hatshepsut's instinct was to continue to rule as co-regent in the name of Thutmose III. Ruling with the full power of the pharaoh, and in her own name, would have been a great risk, given the existence of a legitimate heir, and the limited precedence of female pharaohs. But a political crisis, perhaps a threat from an alternative branch of the royal family, forced her hand. She could not rule for Thutmose with the title of king's mother, because he wasn't her son. His own mother, Isis, had been unable to take on the king's mother title because she had no royal blood. Between her own gender, Thutmose III's young age, and his limited legitimacy as the son of a secondary wife, Hatshepsut's options for establishing stable rule were very limited. In the end, she was the best place to rule, as the daughter and principal wife of two pharaohs, and the holder of the influential religious title of God's Wife. The title of God's Wife of Amun had given her authority even before her elevation to co-regent or co-ruler. It was this title that won her the support of the priests. The God's Wife led festivals to the god Amun, one of the primordial Egyptian gods who was later merged with the ancient sun god to become Amun-Ra, and assisted the high priest in his sacred duties at the great temple of Amun at Karnak. She was held in high regard because it was believed she had direct interaction with Amun, who was revered in Thebes as the creator god and later king of the gods. The god's wife had enough influence and power to dictate policy, as ancient Egypt was a priest-led society, where religion and government were deeply intertwined. Hatshepsut was the last god's wife for many decades, perhaps because the role bestowed enormous power, privilege and wealth on the woman who held this title. Hatshepsut's experience leading religious rituals and working closely with the priests stood her in good stead for the duties of a pharaoh. As well as leading religious processions and festivals, pharaohs had a more direct divine responsibility. Ancient Egyptians saw their pharaohs as a link between the gods and the human race. Pharaohs would be responsible for direct communication with the 42 state gods and goddesses and were charged with maintaining the cosmic order established during creation, called Ma'at. In many cases, pharaohs themselves were seen as semi-divine beings, with some believed to be born of Amun-Ra, including Hatshepsut. and when they died would become fully-fledged divine beings. As well as the support of the priests, Hatshepsut would have relied on the favour of the royal family and the courtiers. Arguments that the cunning Hatshepsut sought to overthrow her stepson and rule alone are undermined by the fact that the ancient Egyptian royal family relied on the support of other elite groups. The risk of being overthrown would have reminded Hatshepsut that she was answerable to others. It seems likely that the courtiers, as well as the priests, supported Hatshepsut's rise to power. Only seventy years before her reign, Egypt had been divided during the Second Intermediate Period, with large regions ruled by other groups, including the Hyksos in the north and the kingdom of Kush in the south. Courtiers relied on the royal family for their privileged positions, and the loss of this royal line would have threatened their power and caused widespread turmoil. Stability and prosperity were the aims of the day, and Hatshepsut, along with the shining legacy of her father, Thutmose I, seemed to offer just that. There is no surviving evidence that suggests Hatshepsut faced any major challenges to her reign. Although she technically ruled as a co-ruler with her stepson, it was clear that Hatshepsut was in charge, with her stepson happy to lead her army and not use this power against her. Despite 19th and 20th century attempts to present this co-ruling duo as in conflict, with Thutmose seen as embittered by his stepmother's rising power, there is little evidence of this. The pieces of evidence which have reached us in the present show a harmonious working relationship." While he grew up, Thutmose valued Hatshepsut's experience of ruling, including during her father's reign while he fought in campaigns, her guidance and her illustrious status as a direct descendant of the royal bloodline. Without the public and elite support Hatshepsut had won, it is possible that the infant Thutmose would have lost the throne to another. It was perhaps the fear of her royal line losing the kingship that encouraged Hatshepsut to become pharaoh, Her claim to more power was supported, and she received the official regalia of the pharaoh, including the cut headcloth featuring the uraeus, the rearing cobra, a traditional false beard, and shendit kilt. Many statues survive showing Hatshepsut in this androgynous royal attire. In reliefs, she is shown striding forward and standing tall, as well as the traditional pious kneeling position, rather than the demure postures of Egyptian female figures. The feminine ankle-length dress and closed-feet stance are rarely used in images of Hatshepsut. Women could have high status in ancient Egypt, and had legal rights to property, unlike in many other ancient and modern civilizations. There had been examples of powerful Egyptian women, including Hatshepsut's own mother, Ahmose, who wielded great influence as the king's daughter. Throughout ancient Egyptian history, many mortal women were worshipped as goddesses, and both before and after Hatshepsut, women reigned as pharaohs. the I, Nitocris, and Sobek Neferu had all ruled in some capacity prior to Hatshepsut, and Nefer and Feruatin, Twosret, and Cleopatra were just some of the important female rulers who came after her. But there was no word for queen in ancient Egypt. King's wife was the title given to those who married the pharaoh, the ruler was called the king or pharaoh, no matter their gender, and female pharaohs, that is, women who ruled fully under their own name and with the regalia and titles of pharaoh, were not common. Before Hatshepsut, there had only been Sobek Neferu, who had reigned six dynasties before her, and had taken on the male title of king. As the office of pharaoh was a distinctly male one, adaptation was necessary for female rulers, The symbolism of ancient Egyptian kingship, the crook and flail, and the uraeus and masculine dress was designed for male rulers, given that the role usually passed from father to son. In the majority of the statues and works of art that have survived until the modern day, Hatshepsut is presented as a masculine king. This was one of the reasons why it took Egyptologists so long to identify her. Hieroglyphic inscriptions said female king. But the imagery was almost entirely masculine. Presenting herself as a male king wasn't deceitful, it was tradition. Egyptian art often presented things as they should be rather than how they are. Older kings and infant kings, like Thutmose III, were also presented as having youthful, trim, masculine physiques. She presented herself as other kings did. Relief scenes show Hatshepsut completing historic kingly rituals from making offerings to the gods and celebrating festivals to trampling foreign captives in the form of a sphinx. Hatshepsut did not completely hide her femininity as she took on the masculine attributes of the kingship. She replaced the traditional male titles and epithets used on hieroglyphic labels on statues and reliefs with feminine variations. Her name was often followed up with Daughter of Re and the feminine word endings she used led to grammatical oxymorons like His Majesty Herself. In private spaces, statues of Hatshepsut depicted her with a mix of male and female attributes. Two rare examples of these statues, now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, show her with the masculine headdress of the pharaoh combined with an obvious feminine silhouette, or even in full feminine dress. It was in public spaces, such as on the processional way, that her statues presented her as a young king in the prime of life. When in sphinx form, kneeling or standing, Hatshepsut's statues sought to portray her as the ideal male king. She also called on the religious aspects of the pharaoh to bolster her legitimacy. She styled herself as Matkare, meaning truth is the soul of the sun god, to emphasize her connection to Amun. One myth even has her as the demigod child of Amun. She aimed to highlight her moral responsibilities as pharaoh. Ma'at, meaning the truth, order, and justice bestowed by the gods, referred to her ability as the legitimate pharaoh to communicate with the gods. This title plainly said that she was destined to help maintain Ma'at and bring stability and prosperity to Egypt. Hatshepsut's legitimacy was further bolstered by the proclamation of the oracle of Amun, The oracle declared that Hatshepsut's rise to become pharaoh was, in fact, Amun's will. Hatshepsut promoted the words of the oracle by carving the following proclamation on many of her grand monuments. Welcome, my sweet daughter, my favorite, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'atkare Hatshepsut. Thou art the pharaoh, taking possession of the two lands. But even the oracle's words did not make Hatshepsut lose sight of the fact that she was a co-ruler, she ordered a relief to be made, to showcase her rise to power, which showed both herself and thutmose III. This relief was placed in the Red Chapel, a sacred building in the sanctuary of Amun-Ra at the temple of Karnak, which housed the Usurhat Amun, a golden boat used by the god Amun to travel around. Both she and her co-ruler Thutmose were presented as men, but Hatshepsut now took the place of precedence. The words of Amun, via the oracle and this visual representation of her power in a place sacred to Amun, emphasized her divine right to be pharaoh. To highlight her legitimacy, Hatshepsut also emphasized her connection to her father, pharaoh Thutmose I. She appeared to idolize her father, who had won fame for his military victories and expansion. When Hatshepsut was a young child, he had returned from his victory against the Kushans in Nubia with the naked body of a Nubian chieftain displayed on the prow of his ship. Thutmose's expansion of the Egyptian empire had vastly increased its prosperity. By presenting herself as her father's chosen successor, she tied herself to his illustrious legacy, and to a long line of successful pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. However, historical evidence to support Hatshepsut's claim of being her father's named successor has not been found. The claim seems especially dubious given that Hatshepsut was married to her half-brother Thutmose II to strengthen his claim as heir. Tradition dictated that sons, even those of secondary wives, took precedence over daughters. Historically, women had only come to power when no male successor was available. So it seems unlikely that Thutmose I would have named Hatshepsut as his successor. But Hatshepsut ensured that her version of history would persevere by inscribing her claim on the walls of her mortuary temple at Deir el-Bahari. Then His Majesty said to them, This daughter of mine, Knumetamun Hatshepsut, may she live. I have appointed as my successor upon my throne. She shall direct the people in every sphere of the palace. It is she indeed who shall lead you. Obey her words. Unite yourselves at her command.' The royal nobles, the dignitaries, and the leaders of the people heard this proclamation of the promotion of his daughter, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare. May she live eternally. Visual representations and inscriptions in buildings were important parts of Egyptian history and successful kingship. Without these architectural works, little would be known of ancient Egypt today. But more importantly, building programs gave the pharaohs the opportunity for self-aggrandizement and legend-building. The achievements of the pharaohs would live on in their architectural works long after they were gone. And Hatshepsut understood this better than anyone. Hatshepsut has been remembered predominantly for her influence on the arts. Her reign saw a cultural renaissance that was to have a lingering effect on Egyptian art and architecture for a millennium. She was one of the most prolific pharaoh-builders, with thousands of projects throughout Upper and Lower Egypt, and especially around the city of Thebes. Many temples were built to display her piety and bolster her claim to semi-divine status as the god's wife of Amun. She also sought to promote her own accomplishments and show off the wealth her policies had brought to Egypt. It was a chance for her to write her own story and ensure that she would not be forgotten. Her buildings were of a much grander style than her predecessors, and were so impressive that later rulers attempted to claim them as their own. She ordered the production of so much statuary that every major museum in the world has pieces from Hatshepsut's reign in their ancient Egypt collections, including a whole room dedicated to her pieces at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. The vastness of her building and statuary projects has left us important evidence about her as a ruler, and about how she wanted to be perceived. The grandest of all Hatshepsut's building projects was, as was traditional, the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, which still exists. Ancient Egyptian mortuary temples were not so much about death as they were a celebration of the eternal life of the pharaoh and their union with the god Amun. A mortuary temple was built for Hatshepsut in the complex at Deir al-Bahari on the west bank of the Nile River, across the bank from the ancient city of Thebes and the modern city of Luxor. It was built into the cliff face, looking towards the Karnak Temple complex on the opposite side of the Nile, where prestigious temples and monuments had been built. She chose a site that would add to her prestige. Her temple was built next to that of Mentuhotep II, the first king of the Middle Kingdom, and the man who had reunified Upper and Lower Egypt. The plot had originally been quarried for her father's tomb. Hatshepsut linked her own mortuary temple to that of her father's, showing her devotion to him and tying their legacies together, to emphasize her legitimacy. She sought to present herself as the rightful successor and dutiful daughter of Thutmose I. She even created a mortuary cult for him in her temple, and later moved his body there, so that they would lie there together. Hatshepsut and her father, Thutmose I, were not the only kings to designate their final resting places in this region. Hatshepsut's mortary temple was so illustrious that future pharaohs built their own mortary temples near to hers, forming what is now known as the Valley of the Kings. Architectural innovation dominated the design of Hatshepsut's temple. It began as a small project in the shadow of Mentuhotep II's tomb. The project grew into a large terraced monument that had to be cut into the cliff face, showing impressive architectural skill. It was enormous, almost the size of two and a half football fields. It featured so many colonnades and courtyards upon its terraces that it appeared to rise up to the side of the mountain. Hatshepsut moved away from the fortress-like designs used by her predecessors and pioneered a more ornate, aesthetically pleasing look. Her beautiful architectural style inspired many future building projects and mortuary temples. Although many of the intricate elements of her original design are now missing, there is enough evidence left behind to piece together what the temple would have looked like in its heyday. The lower levels of her temple were softened with luscious gardens and reflective pools. The myrrh trees from the famous trade expedition she sent to the semi-mythical land of Punt were planted here to highlight her link with the gods and the wealth and exotic goods she had brought to Egypt. The likeness of Hatshepsut appeared in the temple's design many times over. Over a hundred statues of the female pharaoh in the form of a sphinx lined the processional way. These Hatshepsut sphinxes were placed here because the sphinx was seen as a spiritual guardian. This form also had the benefit of removing any signs of gender. The sphinx was always the head of the pharaoh, and the body of a lion, sometimes with the addition of falcon's wings. More images of Hatshepsut were placed on the temple's terraces. Some of these statues were over ten feet tall, and were intended to be seen from a great distance. Several show Hatshepsut in devotional poses, such as kneeling amongst offerings to the gods, or even taking on the appearance of Osiris, god of resurrection. The majority of the statues of Hatshepsut show her in a masculine light, in the appearance of the traditionally male pharaoh. Many of them have survived, some whole and some in fragments, into the present. The centerpiece of the project was the Jezer Jezer, the Holy of Holies, the center of the mortuary temple, which was accessed along a large causeway. It was a symmetrical, multi-columned structure, similar in appearance to the Parthenon in Athens, which was built nearly 1,000 years later. The Jezer Jezeru sat back in the cliff face, and at the top of the grand terraces. In the Jezer Jezeru were altars to Amun-Ra, and to Hatshepsut, where her cult would continue to worship her even after her death. As well as their religious function, mortuary temples would glorify the pharaoh. The reliefs inside Hatshepsut's temple celebrated the achievements of her reign. The trading expedition to semi-mythical punt on the Red Sea was represented. On the relief, sailors and traders load exotic luxury goods onto the Egyptian ships, from panther skins to frankincense, as well as the myrrh trees which were planted at the temple. The accompanying inscription reads, Never were such things brought to any king since the world was. This relief showed Hatshepsut as a successful economic and religious leader. The trading mission to Punt was just one of many trade routes developed under her reign, and the prosperity they brought to Egypt was a significant part of the Third Golden Age. It also showed Hatshepsut as a successful religious leader, as these new exotic goods were thought to be especially desirable to the gods. Another significant relief showed Hatshepsut's divine conception and birth. Hatshepsut encouraged the narrative that she was the biological daughter of the god Amun, who had appeared to her mother in the form of her husband, Thutmose I. The later trend for emphasizing a pharaoh's divine birth is believed to have begun with Hatshepsut, who needed to legitimize her claim to the throne. Hatshepsut sought to highlight the sacred link between the pharaoh and the gods, in particular her personal link with Amun. It was the first time a pharaoh had built a mortuary temple, which was primarily a temple to the god Amun. As well as the altar to Amun, new religious rituals were established to celebrate Amun and his connection with the pharaoh. For example, during a festival of the dead, the cult statue of Amun was sailed across the river to spend a night in Hatshepsut's tomb. The religious rituals she created, usually the privilege of male kings, would have been seen as important as the buildings she commissioned and were clear evidence that she was the legitimate pharaoh. The landscape of Egypt was fundamentally altered by Hatshepsut's building projects. As well as her mortuary temple in Deir el-Bahari, she added and restored many more temples and monuments across Egypt. Monuments were constructed at the Temple of Karnak, as was the tradition under most pharaohs. The Red Chapel was built here, which was a religious chapel dedicated to Amun and featured carvings showing key moments from Hatshepsut's life. A pair of obelisks were constructed to celebrate her sixteenth year as pharaoh. This momentous construction was commemorated on a relief which showed the 450-ton obelisks being transported along the Nile by 27 ships. As well as telling the story of her reign, the obelisks have allowed archaeologists a glimpse at Hatshepsutian architectural design and construction. The discovery of the unfinished obelisk, a broken version left in the quarry in Aswan where it was made, shows the hard work, craftsmanship, and innovation which went into creating these monuments. Hatshepsut also ordered the restoration of great monuments. The precinct of Mut, the mother goddess of Egypt, had been sacked during the Hyksos occupation and was rebuilt under Hatshepsut. The new design featured twin obelisks at the temple's entrance that, at the time, were the tallest in the world. One of them still stands today, and is the second tallest ancient obelisk still upright. The restoration of the Mut precinct was a building project so magnificent that later pharaohs pillaged it for features to bolster their own projects. Other important building projects ordered by Hatshepsut included the Temple of Pakhet at Beni Hassan, south of Alminia. The temple mixed the cultures north and south of the area by being dedicated to both Bast and Sekhmet, two lioness war goddesses. Inside was a denunciation of the Hyksos by Hatshepsut. In it, she claimed that the Hyksos occupation of Egypt had created a cultural decline that was reversed by Hatshepsut herself. The huge underground temple was admired by the Greeks when they occupied Egypt during the Ptolemaic dynasty as it bore resemblance to their own hunter-goddess Artemis, and was renamed by them the Spios Artemidos. As with other impressive buildings, a later pharaoh, this time Seti I of the 19th dynasty, attempted to wipe Hatshepsut's name from the project and replace it with his own. Hatshepsut also devoted time and money to public works programs. These works were mainly focused on the area around Thebes, the dynastic and religious center of the Thutmose-Hatshepsut era. A network of roads and sanctuaries were built, which encouraged access to religious sites and were also used for royal and theological processions. The transformation of the physical and ritual landscape of Egypt was not Hatshepsut's only accomplishment. She also brought huge wealth to Egypt by bolstering its diplomatic and trading links and by being uninterested in expensive wars. This was important as her innovations in architecture and ritual art required huge expenditure. It also pleased the elites, who desired access to exotic goods and wealth in order to display their status. Maintaining the Golden Age ensured Hatshepsut the support and loyalty she needed to rule. Hatshepsut came from a line of economically and culturally successful pharaohs. Her ancestor, Ahmose I, had reunified Egypt after the turbulent Second Intermediate Period, triggering a golden age, and her father, Thutmose I, had strengthened Egypt, leaving her a prosperous and expanding nation to rule. Spurred on by the economic growth and stability of the last few decades, the elites in Hatshepsut's court began to develop a cosmopolitan outlook, An interest in the technological and luxury goods in East Africa and Arabia belonged to the 18th dynasty period as a whole, but was particularly significant under Hatshepsut. There is archaeological evidence that new goods arrived in Egypt during the early part of the 18th dynasty from new musical instruments to oil. Hatshepsut supported this more outward-facing worldview and the desire for foreign goods by building and reforming foreign ties. She sent expeditions to foreign lands, to the south and the east, and encouraged foreign embassies to visit with diplomatic gifts, which increased her prestige. She built new trading links to gain access to desirable goods, from frankincense, which was charred to make coal eyeliner, to oil and the latest military weapons. She worked to re-establish the trade networks disrupted by the Hyksos occupation of Egypt. She was particularly interested in reopening ancient trade routes, she sought to go back to the ancient traditions of kingship, ritual and trade. Foreign trade was vital to a pharaoh because luxury goods were a symbol of royal power